0: Good morning, morning. glad you're here, it's good to see everybody, hope you'll come to our lunch after this service, I know there's going to be some good food, there always is, and everybody is definitely more than welcome to be there. We have your Bibles turn to Psalm chapter 51, rather the 51st Psalm, Psalm 51, and we're going to see some things from there today, and hopefully be able to apply them to ourselves, and See where we stand and how our heart is. When I was eight or nine years old, my mom got quite the scare. I went in for a pretty routine doctor's visit. I wasn't feeling very well, and we went to the doctor, and the doctor started checking me out, and he was, you know, putting his um, I forgot the name of those things. Right here. Stethoscope? Thank you. Started putting his stethoscope around my chest and having me inhale and exhale and all this different stuff. And he just looked worried. And he told my mom later that he thought I might have some kind of pretty serious heart condition, but there would need to be further tests. So we went through all these different further tests and my mom just grew more and more, as you can imagine, anxious. And then all the tests came back negative. And she started to feel a little bit better. And then we went and got a second opinion. And the second doctor said that I just had a pretty bad chest cold and there was nothing wrong. You can imagine my mom's worry, thinking that I might have a pretty serious condition, but thankfully, some doctors who actually knew what they were doing were able to check me out and to diagnose that there really was nothing wrong. That's a physical diagnosis of the heart. Today, we're going to look at a spiritual diagnosis of the heart and look at these things that David, the psalmist here, is expressing to God and see if some of those things are present in our life. See if some of those things are present in our heart and how we view God and how we view sin. So if you're there in your Bibles, in Psalm 51, you probably notice what's sometimes called a superscript. You've got this text before verse 1 of Psalm 51. And that stuff isn't inspired, but it is ancient. These superscripts have accompanied Psalms for thousands of years. Notice what the one in Psalm 51 says, if it's in your Bible. It says, to the chorus master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So that kind of establishes the context for what David is saying here in the psalm by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is after his sin, and if we'd like to get that context if you have your Bible or just listen. In 2 Samuel 11, you read about that sin that's mentioned there in the prologue of Psalm 51. Second Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened, one late one, late, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she went and told David, I am pregnant. So there's the sin, and then here's when David is called out on the sin. If you're in your Bible, Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 and following. Notice, how David learns about this, his attitude about what's going on, just prior before pinning Psalm 51. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very nice flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with and, and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock and of the herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you to the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord who has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. The text goes on, that child eventually dies. In the meantime, David refuses to eat or drink anything. And he's there in sackcloth and ashes, and he's repenting, and he's forlorn. And he finally cleans himself up, but you can only imagine the state he was in. And somewhere in this time, or rather looking back on it, he writes this psalm, Psalm 51. And from this psalm, we see the measure and the depth of David's repentance when he finally came to his senses. And from this psalm, we can see the characteristics of a repentant heart, hopefully characteristics that are present in our life. Psalm 51, notice in the first place that a repentant heart relies on God. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice that David is completely conscious of the fact that he is totally, utterly dependent on God for forgiveness. The first place, he begs to God to have mercy on him. There is an acknowledgement of God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. David's saying, God, if I'm going to come out of this hole, if I'm going to be forgiven for the egregious sin that I've committed, It will only be by your grace and by your mercy and by your faithfulness. The only way for David to be forgiven, and he knew it, was to rely on the power of God. Notice, he's begging God to act. He says, have mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is begging for God to act in his life, to make things right, to cleanse him so that David can be once again pure and forgiven in the eyes of the Lord. If we're going to have a repentant heart, we must acknowledge, just like David does here, in Psalm 51, one through two, we must acknowledge our dependence on God. Sometimes we slip up and maybe we commit a little sin or maybe we do something that just, it seems like we were beside ourselves. It seems like the bigger sins we're more willing to go to God about because we realize how big it is. But the little sins, those are forgiven the, only, the same way the big sins are. It'll only be by God's grace. It'll only be by God's mercy. If we're walking through life and when we struggle and when we stumble, we don't turn to God and ask him for his grace or for his mercy. We're making a mistake. If it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, we wouldn't even be here. We would have no hope. We would be swept away with our sins. The psalmist says in another place, O oh Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, God, if you were without mercy, without grace, and you kept track of every wrong we did, and you acted accordingly, nobody would be left standing. But thankfully, God is gracious. Thankfully, God is merciful. And when we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling with something in our life, when we're looking to repent, we must first acknowledge that God and God alone is the one we must go to. So often, unfortunately, People look for anything else in life other than God to make them feel better, to try to make atonement, to try to get in somebody else's good graces. Maybe they distract themselves with hobbies or uh, with something that's fun to do or whatever it may be. But when we're guilt-stricken and when we've sinned, what we need to do is to go to God and to ask him for his mercy and his grace because he has the ability to help us overcome sin. He has the ability to forgive us, to wash us to cleanse us, and only him. Next, notice that a repentant heart confesses sin. Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6. David goes on, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me secret wisdom in my heart. Notice a couple of things here about what David is saying. In the first place, he's taking personal responsibility for what he's done. Notice verses 3 and 4. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He says, against you and against you only have I sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, so that you may be blameless in your judgment. David's conscious of the deep impression and the deep mark that his own sin has left on his own life and the life of those around him. Further, he realizes how costly sin really is. You read there that David says, against you and against only have I sinned. But you've got to think about Uriah the Hittite. You've got to think more rather, at least what I think about, is Uriah's mom. Imagine Uriah's mom who hears that her daughter-in-law was um, fornicated with the king and then her own son goes and is died, killed in battle because of the king's order. And then for David to say, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. I'm sure Uriah's mom couldn't stand the sight of David or even... Sand hearing his name, I'm sure she had a lot to get over if she was ever not going to hold that grudge against him. But David isn't saying that his sin doesn't hurt anybody else. He's realizing that ultimately, the ultimate consequence is with the Lord. And he's confessing that. He's open about it. He's not trying to hide it. He's not playing what sometimes we call the blame game. He's not trying to shift the blame to somebody else. He's not saying, Lord, well, she shouldn't have been out there bathing. Lord, she shouldn't have came when I called for her. He says, Lord, against you and against you only have I sinned. He's not trying to make excuses. He's owning up and he's admitting. And he's not beating himself up, but he also recognizes the distance between himself and God. Look at verses 5 and 6. Notice the contrast there between verses 5 and 6. They begin with the same word, but there's a contrast between David and God. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you, unlike, unlike David, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. It's unfortunate that many in the religious world have taken verse 5 to teach a doctrine that simply isn't true, total hereditary depravity that people are born guilty of sin, when in fact, in this section, David's trying to do the opposite. He's trying to confess and to show that he's taking personal responsibility for his sin. Look again at verses 3 and 4. I have sinned, my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, David says, you are just in your judgments. It is fair for you to do what you've done as a consequence for my sin. He's not trying to get out of it. He's not trying to say, well, God, I was just born this way. This is how I am. The opposite. Verse 5, he's using a hyperbole to really show and and with imagery demonstrate the depth of how messed up and sinful what he did was. It's as if he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. His mother conceived him. But there's a difference between David and God. That's David, but notice God, verse 6. You delight in the truth of the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David's sinfulness, David's rhetorical device to illustrate how sinful his actions really were are contrasted with the truthfulness and the wisdom of God. If David would have stuck with God, would have followed his commandments, would have followed God's wisdom, this never would have happened in the first place. But behold, David is fessing up as it were and taking accountability for what he's done wrong. For us, it's the same thing. If we're really going to repent, if we're going to have a repentant heart, a heart that shies away from sin, a heart that seeks to grow closer to God, we must take accountability for our sins. If we want to overcome that evil in our life, we must own up to it. If there's something we've done wrong, we must admit it, we must confess it, and we must seek to make right wherever possible. And Psalm, sorry, rather, Proverbs 28, Proverbs 28, verse 13, Wisdom teaches us this, "'Whoever conceals his transgressions "'will not prosper, "'but he who confesses and forsakes them "'will obtain mercy.'" And as often you see in the Proverbs, there's this one thing and then the other. There's this contrast that's made there in Proverbs 28, 13. You've got the man who covers up his sin, who doesn't admit it, who doesn't want anybody to know about it, who doesn't take accountability for it, and says, I don't know, look, uh, maybe he's obstructing people from finding out about it. He's trying to distance himself from it. And Proverbs says that person doesn't prosper. But then there's the other person. Instead of hiding their sin, they confess it. They're open about it. They say, yeah, I did sin. But it's more than that. They confess it, and they forsake it. They say, I did sin, but I've turned from that. That's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to turn away from those things. And even if you still struggle with it, even if it's still something that is nagging in your life, to be open about it, to be turning from it, the Proverbs say that is what obtains mercy. The blame game, as we often call it, the kind of shifting of blame to say, well, I know I did this thing, but you've got to look at the environment I was raised in. You've got to look at how my parents treated me. You've got to look at all of these things. It's temporarily convenient and it's even comforting. David could have done that. He had a lot of reasons, a lot of excuses he could have made, but it never really works. Because you can fool everybody, but you can't fool God. The blame game never really works. And more than that, it never leads to healing. It never leads to forgiveness. If you're constantly just covering stuff up, you're never able to confess it. You're never able to turn from it. You're never able to be forgiven. And when we understand the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God, like David did, finally, we'll seek to rid our lives of it by owning responsibility And by seeking God's help to turn from it. Notice in the next place that a repentant heart seeks restoration. So a repentant heart depends on God. A repentant heart confesses sin. And a repentant heart, next, seeks restoration. Notice verses 7 through 12. And notice all the verbs, all the things that David asks God to do. Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Hyssop was used in the Old Testament to make things ritually clean, to disinfect things. Verse 7 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see there that David is asking for a clean slate from God. David knows that if he's going to be clean, if he's going to be purged from evil, if he's going to be pure, it'll only be because of what God does. It's God who purges, it's God who washes. It's God who gives David a clean slate. So that's what he's asking for. Notice that it's only God who's able to heal David's condition and do away with his guilt. David could work every day for the rest of his life, be the best person from then on out. But there's still that problem of guilt. There's still that problem of sin. So he begs to God, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. More than that, David is asking for a restoration of his inner self and a restoration of his relationship with God, verses 10 through 12. He asks for his heart to be clean. He knows that God only can create in him a clean heart. He asks for a right spirit, a spirit that follows God, a spirit that seeks to follow God. God is the one capable of renewing this within David. Verse 11, he knows his sin. Because of his sin, he deserves not to be in the presence of God, but he begs God. Don't cast me out of your presence. As he anointed the Lord, the Holy Spirit was with him. And he said, please, God, I know I've sinned, but do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And then verse 12, he says, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me be glad again to be your person, to follow your commandments, to live my life as I should. He begs God, uphold me with a willing spirit. God, let me have a spirit that seeks to do good a spirit that actually wants to follow you, a spirit that follows your path. God is able to clean David's heart. God is able to allow David to overcome this sin as David begs to him for mercy and for help. And God can, by his grace, heal David of his broken emotions, of his broken relationships, but David must seek God and follow God and call upon God to act. For us today, God is more than willing to offer a full pardon. He's more than willing to give us a clean slate. He's more than willing to purify those who humbly come to Him on His terms. Maybe you have a past where you've sinned a lot. Maybe there's one big sin in your life and you're not a Christian, and this whole life you've been bearing it. God can take that from you. That was crucified to the cross with Jesus, and He can restore you he can put a clean heart in you he can renew your spirit and he can bring you into his presence sometimes even as christians though our hearts wander astray we allow ourselves to be lured by sin and god still offers a way back into full fellowship with him always he's always seeking to restore these relationships to restore this brokenness and even though some of it now is temporary And the day to come, like Scott talked about at the Lord's Supper, it will be eternal. And there is no brokenness. There is no tears. There is no sadness. And God's the one who does that. Nobody else can. Further, we must not let pride get in the way of us coming to God and seeking his help. Sometimes that's what happens. We know we're wrong. We know we've sinned. But pride allows us to cover it up, to keep covering it up. Pride prohibits us from going to the one person God, who can actually help us and restore us and forgive us. Don't let that be you. Don't let pride stand in the way between you and a restored, full relationship with God and with those around you. Because with God, those things are possible, and he does deliver. He will act, and he will heal if you approach him on his terms. Lastly this morning, a repentant heart bears fruit. David doesn't stop there, so he says... Uh, Lord, have mercy on me. A repentant heart depends on God. A repentant heart confesses sin. A repentant heart even seeks restoration. And lastly, a repentant heart bears fruit. Notice what David says there, Psalm 51, beginning in verse number 13, 13 through 19. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, Lord, if you cleanse me and create in me a new heart and Cast me not away from your presence and restore me and uphold me. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and what will happen, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, David prays, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God... Our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Notice how David he says: the result of him being forgiven, the result of him being restored to a right relationship with God is praise and service. A repentant heart seeks to help others. Look at verse 13. If you cleanse me, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David says, God, if you forgive me, if you bring me back into fellowship with you, I'll try to tell others about you. I'll try to tell others about how they too need to repent and can repent and come back into full fellowship with you. A repentant heart seeks to praise God for what God's done in their life. Look at David in verses 14 and 15. He says, if you deliver me from this guilt, O oh God, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, O oh Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. He says, God, if you restore me, if you forgive me, if you cleanse me, I'm not going to go back to my old way of life. I'm going to try to help other people. I'm going to try to get other people into this restored relationship with you, to get other people to be forgiven by you. I'm even going to praise you. I'm going to sing songs of worship to you. I'm going to praise you as often as I can you see David doesn't just seek forgiveness so he can go out and sin again he doesn't say God forgive me and then once he's a clean slate he goes out and he does the same thing he says no it's going to be different God if you forgive me I'm going to change my actions I'm going to change my habits this forgiveness isn't a license to dig deeper into sin this forgiveness is the green light to really change David, to really get others to come to the Lord with him and to worship God with him. Instead of going through the motions, David wants his whole life to be a sacrifice to God. Verses 16 through 17, he said, I would give you a burnt offering, but there's something you want more, God, because you can give a burnt offering and not really be there in your heart. You can come to services and not really be involved, not really be engaged, and you can go through the motion and sing the words and not really worship. David says, I don't want to just give you something with the heart not in it. He says, the sacrifices that are pleasing to you, verse 17, a broken heart, a broken, contr- a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So if David's going to give the burnt offering, he's got to give himself too. He's got to have a heart that is sad over sin, a heart that seeks to be in a right relationship with God. And David realizes, verses 18 and 19, that his genuine repentance will impact the spiritual life of his entire community. In verses 18 and 19, when he's talking about uh, the Lord doing good in Zion, when he's talking about the walls of Jerusalem being built up, when he's talking about then, we'll offer praises to you. David, in his position of leadership, rather in his position of influence, he realizes that not only does his sin have a negative impact on those around him, but his repentance can have a positive impact on those around him. The same is true for us. No matter how unimportant we think we might be, there's somebody who's influenced by us. There's somebody who looks up to us. There's somebody whose sin hurts us. There's somebody who, if we repent, it would make their day. And if we're people with repentant hearts, we're going to seek to bear fruit, not See forgiveness as a license to sin again but to see forgiveness as the ability to go on doing what God would have us to do and to bring others with us repentance ought to bear fruit our change of heart our change of mind ought to lead to actions Matthew 3:8 remember John the baptizer he says to bear works or bear fruit in keeping with repentance and 2 Corinthians Paul there writes that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A repentant heart that grieves for sin and seeks God will bear fruit. A repentant heart does more than just confess and rely on God. It goes out changed, and it gets to work. I hope and pray that our hearts as the Christian community here In Auburndale, as members of this church at Orange Street, that it's more than just being forgiven; it's being forgiven and then going out and doing something about it, trying to get others to be forgiven, trying to reach out to those around us, trying to call on God to do good in our lives, in the lives of other people. Hopefully, we are producing fruit because of our repentance. Hopefully, our sinful habits have been replaced by praise and service to God, just like they were in the life of David. Maybe in your life, sometime in your past, you've got a big sin like David, and you've never taken care of it. You've never put Christ on in baptism. You've never called out to God for forgiveness. That's how you do that today. David, in his special place, anointed king of God, during the Old Testament, he could cry out to God and ask for forgiveness. Today, to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness, you have to obey his gospel, to believe in his son, to confess his name, to repent of your sins, to be buried in baptism. And just like David begs for, when you rise out of the grave of baptism, you will have a clean heart. You will have a right spirit. Your iniquities will be blotted out. You'll be washed. You'll be delivered from guilt. And you can go about the rest of your life doing good for God. Maybe there's no big David-like sin in our life, but maybe there's things every day that drag us down and bring us down. Rejoice, because in Christ those are overcomable. We can access God the Father through Jesus Christ. He's our advocate. He's the propitiation for our sins. And we don't have to allow the sin in our life to keep us from being in a relationship with God because Jesus died. And we can go to him through him. And it says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he is just and gracious to forgive us all of our iniquities. Not some of them, but all of them. When we turn to him and ask him for help. There's nothing quite like guilt. It erodes the soul. It even has negative physical Consequences. But God is willing to do away with all of it. That's why he sent his son to die. One of the worst feelings you can feel is guilt, and that's the very thing that God can absorb and take out of your life if you come to Him on His terms. Won't you do that this morning? In Christ there's reason to rejoice. No guilt in life, no fear in death, as one song says. And that is true. As we walk in the light of God, God has forgiven us. We must ask ourselves if, like David, at least here in this psalm, we have a repentant heart. If we were to go to a spiritual doctor of sorts and they were to run those tests on our heart, would they see that our heart relies on God, that our heart confesses sin, that our heart seeks to bear fruit? I hope that's true in your life and mine as well. Feel the need to come forward, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to ask for help, to ask for prayers. This song is prepared for you to do just that. Please come as we stand and sing.